these Psalter hymnals. I'm so glad to be singing them. Praise God. If you would turn with me now or listen on as we say, uh, we, uh, we read, I read uh, Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10. As I say, it strongly parallels the sad incident in Exodus 32, the incident of the golden calf. Hear the word of God. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they, de- and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. Then Moses called Mishael and Elsaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp. So they went near and carried them by their tunics out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the people. But... Let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord has kindled. You shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you. When you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations, that you may distinguish between holy and unholy. And between unclean and clean, and that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. And Moses spoke to Aaron, to Eleazar and Ethamar, his sons who were left, take the grain offering that remains of the offerings made by fire to the Lord and eat it without leaven beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place because it is your due and your son's due of the sacrifices made by fire to the Lord. So uh, for so I have been commanded the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering. You shall eat in a clean place. You, your sons and your daughters with you. For they are your due and your sons due, which are given from the sacrifices of peace offerings of the children of Israel. The thigh of the heave offering, the breast of the wave offering, they shall bring with the offerings of fat made by fire to offer as a wave offering before the Lord. And it shall be yours and your sons with you by a statute forever, as the Lord has commanded. Then Moses made careful inquiry about the goat of the sin offering, and there it was burned up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the sons of Aaron, who were left, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in a holy place, since it is most holy, and God has given it to you to bear the guilt of the congregation, to make atonement for them before the Lord? See, its blood was not brought inside the holy place. Indeed, you should have eaten it in a holy place, as I commanded. And Aaron said to Moses, Look, this day I have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering because uh, before the Lord, and such things have befallen me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would it have been accepted in the sight of the Lord? So when Moses heard that, he was content. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word as ever. We praise you for the message of Leviticus and of Leviticus 10. It's a a precious chapter to us, Lord, and it's a solemn one. We ask you that you might 
impress us as you impressed these men who were still standing with your holiness and your glory. Through the preaching, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. With Leviticus chapters 8 and 9 now firmly uh, fixed in our minds, we realize the priesthood has commenced. It's been established. The priestly work work has uh, begun on the eighth day. Seven days of consecration. The eighth day in Leviticus chapter 9, they began the work. Or they they began the work. And, well, at this moment, you can imagine that the prospects of Israel's religion at this moment were... Uh, were bright and pleasant. This was a happy day, if ever there was one, in the life of Israel. We envision, especially on the eighth day, the priests busy about their work, Aaron and his four sons, commencing Israel's worship, as well as the ministry of grace, opening up the way for sinners to come, drawing near to God. And yet, the sad testimony of the old church, it appears... uh, It hadn't changed. It hadn't gotten any better. Just as we find in the midst of giving the law, Moses comes down from the mountain. And what ought to have been a joyous time was a time of apostasy and sin. And so, if I could put it this way, it it seems as though God sets up true religion one day. That's the eighth day. Leviticus 9. And Israel, it seems, never could make it to the second day. That's what you find at Sinai. That's what you find again now at Sinai in the setting up of the tabernacle. That it seems just as soon as religion was set up, it was ruined by sin and rebellion. And what was the significance of this? Well, there, there are many points that could be made. And if we just take the text consecutively, we will see them. And so we begin with the sins, or the sin rather, individual or singular of Nadab and Abihu, verses 1 through 3. And what was their sin? Well, it was the sin of strange fire or profane fire. The character of their sin or the essence of their sin was this, that God had not commanded it. That's what Moses says. And really, that's all we need to know. We could ask, along with the commentators, what exactly was this strange fire? Did it have to do with incense or did they maybe uh, take fire from a fire that was outside the camp and begin to light things with that rather than the fire that was on the altar? I don't know. And the Bible doesn't say. But what it does say is that the characteristic of the strange and the profane fire is simply this. The Lord did not command it. As meticulous as the Lord had been in his regulations and commands of the priesthood, the laws of the priesthood, we've been calling them, he had never commanded this fire that they Engaged in. Do we need to know more? The text doesn't tell us more. Can we imagine that in offering this strange fire, that they presumed upon their newfound office and assumed prerogatives that did not belong to them? The Lord had told them what to do. And immediate, as well as what not to do, and immediately they begin to go beyond it. Their office had gotten to their head. We find in this one of the most striking instances of the regulative principle of worship. Which means simply that worship is to be regulated by Scripture. 
you might notice the contrast between the refrain of chapter 8. All through the chapter we read that Moses did as the Lord had commanded. All through the chapter. He must say it ten times. And with that still in our minds, we come to chapter 10, verse 1, and we read that they let fire, profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded. And so if the essence of the regulative principle is to do what the Lord commands, its opposite is doing what he has not commanded. Not merely you see that which he has forbidden. That's the normative principle. But even doing that which he has not commanded is considered a violation of the regulative principle or simply the scriptural principle of worship. Now, this was the thing that animated our Puritan forefathers in their zeal for worship that was pure and simple and spiritual. And, and, and really, we ought to delight to be their children. It was the same desire that animated Moses, though it did not animate Nadab and Abihu. Well, you see, I'm drawing a straight line from Moses to the Puritans and then to ourselves. But perhaps you will say, is not our freedom in the new covenant freedom from all this? All of the rules and regulations Well, in some sense it is. In some sense, we could say, and we should say, that part of the beauty of the new covenant is that we worship now in greater simplicity and freedom. Greater simplicity and freedom. And let our worship reflect that. It's one of the reasons that, well, again, these same Puritan fathers have stressed uh, that we don't quite go as far as uh, some of our our fellow Christians do in the high church tradition. No, let there be simplicity and freedom in worship. And let us thank God for that, that we worship him now in a new covenant, not in the old. But still, the principle remains. And it really ought not to be difficult for us to grasp for ourselves that simply that we should do what the Lord commands. And we shouldn't do what he doesn't command, especially in worship. And still less should we do that which he forbids. Do you see in this episode, not just the zeal of Moses, but the zeal of the Lord himself. The zeal that he has that his commands be honored and that they not be transgressed. The zeal he takes in his own worship. And I I would just add to that 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 is a zeal which has not changed and it has not diminished. And all of us should be afraid lest we should be found to offer strange fire. You see, that principle remains. To violate the regulative principle in worship is to offer to the Lord strange fire, offering to him something he has not commanded. Does not the New Testament also bear the same testimony? For do we not find in the earliest days of the church in Acts chapter 5 that the Lord struck down Ananias and Sapphira? Or do we not find in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that the Apostle Paul warns that many are sick and some even sleep as a result of profaning the Lord's 
the Lord's table? Or do we not find the testimony, the same testimony in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, concerning apostasy? The Lord is a consuming fire. We too easily forget as we read a passage like Leviticus chapter 10 that God is not changed. He is the same God today as he was then. And he's been known even in the new covenant to strike a man down for false worship. What is at issue in all of this is above all the holiness of God. That's what we find in the conversation between Moses and Aaron. You imagine Uh, God has just struck down two of Aaron's sons, and he only had four. In those days, there were five priests, and God had just killed two of them. You imagine that Moses and Aaron walk to the scene, and they are standing over the two dead bodies. And Moses turns to his brother, and he says, looking at the dead sons of Aaron, by those, well, he says, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. Those who come near, that is, the priests, I must be regarded holy by them. And I must be glorified in them. And so God Or Moses is rather quoting God, speaking of the priests themselves, them of all people. And yet we could immediately say that the same might be said of us. For are we not those who draw near? Is that not the position of the Christian in the new covenant? And are we not thus bid to regard him as holy, to esteem and to adore him as one who is holy, unlike ourselves and one who is likewise glorious? Does not his grace teach us to reverence his majesty? Or does it teach us something else? Let us be careful lest we learn the wrong lesson from his grace. That's the sad testimony of Nadab and Abihu. They thought they could sin without consequence. They thought it didn't matter. They thought God didn't care. And how wrong they were. We find in the fires which went forth from the mercy seat, the judgment of God. And the judgment of God was this. On the day that you transgress, you will surely, got, you will surely die. What, uh, what he said to Adam in the garden. The wages of sin is death. It wasn't a plague. The punishment this time was death. But we might ask here, was not God being excessively severe? After all, this was but one sin. And further, these men now being washed and consecrated, did that not, in some sense at least, shield them from such judgments? It's clear, at least, that they imagined that it did. And after all, was God really prepared to rob Israel of two-fifths of her priesthood? Well, the answer is that he was. Had God not warned them repeatedly, these very priests... That he must be honored and he must be glorified by them. And that they must be careful to observe all his statutes lest they die. God here was only being true to his word, to his promises, to his warnings. And yet it would seem that they doubted that he would be. Again, presuming upon his grace, which is to abuse it. What is the lesson? Well, the lesson is this. It's the same lesson in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. Let us not think that our place in the visible church, 
shields us from the judgment of God. That is presumption. That is the road to hypocrisy. Let us not think that our our access to the ministry of grace, as well as priestly consecrations, which are outward, akin to our baptisms, water baptism, let us not think that these outward things exempt us from God's judgment. For there are those who are washed outwardly, but not inwardly. And their claim to grace proves false. Look here, God says, and find a cautionary tale, not only for Israel, but also for us. And do you notice that the the same fire we read of just two verses earlier, the fire which the Lord kindled upon the altar, fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat of the altar. That was the fire which the Lord kindled and which ever burned until Israel was uh, driven into captivity. Just two two verses later, we read of fire coming forth from the Lord again. How sad that God should kindle two fires, one after another. One of grace one day and one of judgment the next. But does this not underscore the very realities of grace and judgment, both of which proceed from the same God, and tell us, That we must deal with him on the basis of one or another. Either his fire will consume the sacrifice and we will be spared. Or that same fire must consume us like these two men, Nadab and Abihu. And does it not tell us likewise that in the church you will always find both. Even among ministers. Those who are true and those who are false. Well, so much for the sins of Nadab and Abihu. In the defense of the regulative principle. In the second place, we see these instructions uh, for Eliezer and Ithamar. In essence, you have verses 4 through 7 funeral instructions uh, which are given uh, to their relatives, Mishael and Elsaphan. The instructions were, let them take the bodies out. And note uh, of interest though I don't know how much significance I can possibly attach to this, but the garments were untouched by the fires of judgment. The bodies, well, they were killed, and the bodies and the garments were separated. But the the important point is that the priests were forbidden to do this. They were forbidden to touch the unclean bodies, which were now dead, and they were forbidden in particular and especially to leave the tabernacle and the priestly service. Let Mishael and Elsevan deal with the dead bodies. But let the others, those sons of Aaron who remained, along with Aaron himself, mourn not. That's what's so striking here. The Lord is in essence saying, I'm not going to allow you to mourn. You have to go on. For there was no possibility that the work of the priesthood, now that it had begun and it had just begun, No possibility that it should stop. No, not for a single moment. That fire which the Lord had kindled, let it burn day and night as a type and a testimony of the eternal priesthood of Jesus Christ who now enjoys an eternal priesthood and ever lives in the presence of God to make intercession for you. And that is a work that he never ceases. No, not for a single moment. You can always find him using the imagery found here. Always find him laboring within the veil. 
never leaving the presence of the Father, lest wrath suddenly burst forth against the people. We have, uh, as ever in the book of Leviticus, yet another fitting figure of an important spiritual truth, the eternal priesthood of Jesus Christ. We also find here sober warnings for these remaining three priests, even though the Lord had just killed uh, their, their brothers and, and, and uh, Aaron's sons. In essence, the Lord is saying, do not go as your brothers went. Suffer not the same fate. Heed these words, lest you die, he repeats several times. Indeed, bewail, bewail the fire which the Lord has kindled. Bewail the, uh, the sin that caused the fires of God's wrath to burst forth against sinners. Be, be, bewail the fate of these men. And even beyond that, I might add, bewail the fate of sinners in hell. Whoever have to deal with the fires of God, which he has kindled against them. And take heed, the Lord says, lest you should suffer their fate. But again, here is the real point in this episode, verses 4 through 7. And that is, the priesthood is not suspended. No, not if others would be spared of the fate of these men. For there is a fire which God has for man. The fires of wrath which burn everlastingly in his heart, in his being for sin. A wrath stored up for people, ready to be poured out. As it had just been poured out upon these two men. A fire which God would pour out upon mankind. If not for the work of the priesthood. The work of the priesthood set up to atone for sin and thus enable men to forgo the wrath of God for their sins. And let the priests never forget it. How essential their work was, nor indeed the people. That if ever they should lack a priest to intercede before God on their behalf, there would be nothing to hold back the fires of his wrath from consuming us as well. But thank God the testimony of these men, these three remaining priests, was very different. We read at the end in verse 7, they did according to the word of Moses. Thank God. Nadab and Abihu did what the Lord had not commanded. But these men, well, they returned to that prior testimony of chapter 8. All that the Lord commanded, they did. They heeded his words. They were mindful of the warnings. And, and, and I would add and ask you, is the Christian life really so different than theirs? Does God not make to us a plain What his will is for us. And so does he not make it easy in the end to obey. We do not deal with mysteries. He speaks plainly and fully to us in his word. And he asks us simply. Will you obey? And can it be said of us. That we did according to the word of Moses. Or are we more like Nadab and Abihu. Who go beyond it and ignore his commands. May our testimony be that of these other men. And not of Nadab and Abihu. But we find uh, next in the third place. New regulations for the priesthood in verses 8 through 11. It's fascinating to see. Something that we had not seen before. And so in essence. uh, The rule or the law of the priesthood just became stricter. On account of uh, the sins of these two men. Sin and judgment has made them necessary. Uh, I, I might summarize the thought by saying. Times of apostasy are times of renewal. Or at least they can be. And, and, and if not, well, then the world might just simply be all done away with all at once. But in God's wonderful providence, he, he, he takes times in which the church is straying. 
And the people are unbelieving. And he makes them times of renewal. This is, I think, a matter of encouragement to the church. That the Lord, uh, the Lord, even in periods of tremendous darkness and sin and even judgment, the Lord is able to speak to us again. But do you notice that revival is not found as God's remnant becomes careless. But rather, revival is found in days of apostasy as God's remnant becomes more careful, if anything. More careful to observe God's commandments. Let us take heed to that as well. What is the command here? Well, it's no alcohol. The priests are not allowed to drink. Why? Well, was it uh, that these two men were drunk? Perhaps, uh, though I'm not among those who think so. Although it's, it's possible. The Lord is saying these men got drunk as they were drinking uh, the, the drink offerings. And they were carried into extremes. The drink offerings of the, of the eighth day. It's possible. Although I am among those who say that they were of a sober mind and they acted deliberately. And that is why the Lord struck them down. The reason that the Lord enjoins the priests to this. Is because he would have them to show greater care. Greater carefulness. He would have them to be shielded from any possible indiscretion or even the appearance of indiscretion. Let there, the Lord says, be a clear and constant demonstration of the holiness of the priests. Something of this may be likened to ministers of the new covenant. It is true, and let us be clear, there is no such injunction scripturally placed upon ministers of the new covenant. We are never told that we may not drink wine. Jesus himself drank wine. His first miracle, he turned water into wine. Timothy is told to take a little wine for his stomach. We're never told not to drink wine. And yet the spirit of the command remains what it was. And it remains in force. In fact, the spirit of the command is placed upon all believers in what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. And and happily, I might add that the next thing he says is that we would be singing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. That's the first the first mark of a spirit filled church. But do not be drunk with wine. That's the prohibition. Do not be filled with it so that you're no longer full of God's spirit. And so that you will, well, throw off the restraints of God's commands. That's the injunction. But do you see that? It amounts to the same thing. Yes, there's greater simplicity. There's greater freedom in the new covenant. There always is. But we are animated by the same spirit. That we as God's priests who minister in his earthly sanctuaries are to be full of God's spirit. Are to be careful to shun even the appearance of evil and indiscretion. That you may, the Lord says, distinguish between holy and unholy. And between unclean and clean. And that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. That is to be the concern of those priests, those lesser priests. That is you and me, the priesthood of all believers. as we minister in God's sanctuary. But the next thing we see is a fourth point is the way that God reassures his priest in verses 12 through 15. He in essence tells them in those verses... uh, 
unlike the prior verses where he says something different, here he just repeats something old. He just goes over old regulations. He says, I want you to do this, and I want you to do this, and I want you to do this, and I want you to be sure that as you offer these sacrifices that you take your part and that you eat the meal, for that's your portion. Do you realize what the Lord is doing? He's reassuring these remaining three men. And it was important that God should do this, for they may have wondered. You can easily uh, see this. They may have wondered now where they, the remaining priests, stood with God. Was he now angry with them? Were they on the cusp of being consumed as well? The Lord at this moment was angry with sinners. He was offended. Was their peace and reconciliation therefore forfeited? And for that matter, they thought, what would happen of the priesthood? Well, God's answer to them was this. The priesthood would remain. Yes, it would remain. Let them see this. Let them be assured of their rights and their prerogatives as priests of the Lord. The Lord had not forsaken the priesthood, nor did he forsaken these men. And he would see to it that they would not forsake their place as well. Let them know that God was for them and not against them. Andrew Bonar says, Lest Aaron and his son should suppose that they had forfeited their privileges, here they are assured that all their privileges remain to them as full as ever. But all of this is immediately tested in the final episode, verses 16 to 20. And I can only ask, are we, are we surprised? The Lord has, uh, he has, in essence, reestablished the priesthood, or, or at least reaffirmed the priesthood. He's told them, stick to your task, and I, and I put this further injunction upon you, but then, uh, but then let me remind you of what you're supposed to be doing. And all of this is put to the test right away. A new and sudden crisis, verses 16 through 20. Then Moses made careful inquiry about the goat of the sin offering, and there it was, burned up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the sons of Aaron who were left, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in a holy place, since it is most holy, and God has given it to you to bear the guilt of of the congregation, to make atonement for them before the Lord? See, its blood was not brought inside the holy place. Indeed, you should have eaten it in a holy place as I commanded it. Now it really seemed that the whole priesthood was in jeopardy. We have here an instance of how closely, looking first of all to Moses, how closely Moses guarded the priesthood. He made careful inquiry. That's the first thing we read. I wonder if that could ever be said of us. Do we carefully inquire as to the state of our own souls? Do we ever carefully inquire as to the state of God's worship? And if you ever, like Moses, been angry that something was amiss, not as a personal affront, but as those in some sense, like Moses here, who sought to guard God's worship from all evil, from strange and profane fire. We, we, we can basically see Moses saying at this moment, not again, surely not now and so soon. What was their offense? Well, Moses tells us, in verses, verses 16 through 18, and I just read them. In essence, they did not eat the sin offering. And what was it, you ask, and I ask, that cleared Aaron and his sons? And why, after all, never mind Moses' anger, why were they spared by the Lord? 
Well, Aaron says this. Look this day, they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and such things have befallen me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would it have been accepted in the sight of the Lord? This is one of the hardest verses I've ever come across. And there are times that I confess these times to you that I'm not exactly sure what to say. Times when the commentaries are no help to me. I can only give you the best answer that I, I am aware to give you. And it is the presence of extenuating circumstances here. Though I say again, it really isn't clear. There is something here in what, in what Aaron says, such things have befallen me. My sons have just been killed. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would it have been accepted in the sight of the Lord? What's interesting to note, and really what's so valuable to us, even in our carefulness to adhere to the regulative principle, is that God does make allowances for exceptions. That's not the purpose of this passage. It's not to say if you ever find yourself in extenuating circumstances and you don't quite get it right, God's just going to strike you down right there. No, the Lord, he doesn't delight in sacrifices offered in a rote and a thoughtless manner, but he, he delights in a broken heart. That's what he's looking for. The spirit and the spirit of the law. Yes, the Lord makes exceptions. He makes allowances. That's not what was at issue here. Not in the case of Nadab and Abihu. And that's why the Lord did not strike down these three men. It's not as though, let us realize, there can be no deviation ever. Aaron was under extreme duress. I admit I'm somewhat guessing here. But you can tell me what you think of this. He was saying to Moses, Moses, I know the Lord commanded me to eat, but how could I eat? I didn't leave the tabernacle. I went about the sin offering and the burnt offering, but I, I, I couldn't bring myself to eat it. I was in too great of distress. Yes, the priesthood must go on. But I realized that I, might, I must offer in a right spirit. And if I should eat the sin offering, which I'm told to do in a spirit of rejoicing, would it have been accepted? Hardly. And that's what he appeals to there. The extenuating circumstances. What you see in verse 20, and this is how it ends. That that is satisfying to Moses. He accepts that. Not as an excuse, but as something which explains what Aaron had done. Aaron was just a man, you remember. He wasn't Jesus. He was just a man. He was beset with weakness, just like you and me. The man could only do so much. And so even though Moses was animated with a tremendous zeal and was even driven to some extent to an unusual extreme, ready to find fault when there was none or at least where the fault itself was easily excused, still we see in Moses one who was easily pacified. He was open to reason. Even at the moment he was most animated, he was open to reason. He was ready to believe the best about his brothers. He was ready to acquit his brothers if indeed there was no, found, uh, no fault to be found. I would say here to all of you, like Moses, let us not be more severe than God. God did not find fault with his priest here. Let us not be more severe than God. And let us be sure that when it appears that our brother is excused, 
especially in extenuating circumstances, that we lay down our swords, even if our, even in our zeal for the regular principle of worship, and that we lay down our anger. Let us rejoice with Moses to be at peace with our brothers, and let us be ready to do so. But as I close here, I would like to set before you uh, what is uh, a fitting picture of what will befall us on the last day. And so here we're broadening our horizon and our perspective, uh, once again borrowing from Andrew Bonar. Especially have in mind here the sins of Nadab and Abihu and the way in which Moses and Aaron relate to that. Again, a picture of spiritual truth set before us. On the one hand, there will be those on that day like Nadab and Abihu. It will be for them a day of sudden calamity. God will catch them and he will meet them in the midst of their sin. There will be no opportunity for repentance. He will come upon them unawares and they will be undone. They will be consumed by the fires of his wrath. No possibility of repentance will be afforded them. But on that same day, there will be others like Moses and Aaron who stand there and they witness it. The fire is consuming others, but it doesn't consume them. It doesn't consume us. And can you imagine what it will be like on that day? It's one thing to think about Moses and Aaron standing there on that day. That's amazing enough. But to think of what it will be like on that day, the day of the Lord. And I would ask you, is that a day that you long for? Do you long to see God's holiness and glory appear in the damnation of sinners? The fire of his wrath consuming the wicked, even your own children, even those to whom you're related. Can you really, with Moses and Aaron there, look upon those to whom you're related as wicked? If God should judge them and rejoice. Do you long for Christ to appear both as the savior of his church. But also the judge of the world. I think that's an important test for the church. But another question occurs to us at the same time. And that is what are we to do in the meantime. Until that day should come. And I wonder if it could be any clearer in light of the teaching of this text. Are you surprised to hear me say that we are to worship him until he comes? We are to give ourselves to worshiping him. We're to do what these priests were doing. Don't leave the tabernacle. Stay in the tabernacle. Frankly, this this, these days of the new covenant are not a time for mourning. And I see a strong parallel here between what is said in Leviticus chapter 10. Not a time for mourning, but rather a time for worship. A time to praise him and acknowledge his greatness and his power. To stand in awe of him and to look with hope in anticipation for his coming. And I ask you now as I close, am I describing you? Do you find in your heart that you regard his grace as something that is light and something easy? Your access to his grace in the ordinances. Something that makes you careless. And disregard his commandments. Well then I tell you. You are no different than Nadab and Abihu. This is a a very searching text isn't it? But do you find perhaps. The contrary is true. Do you find like Moses and Aaron. 
And Aaron's two sons, two remaining sons, in his grace, something awesome. Something that is compatible with his holiness and his glory and his judgments. Something that astounds you. Do you find that you are able to say, as Moses did, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. Amen. And let us return now. Praise to God. Standing uh, together once again from the Trinity Psalter hymnal. Hymn, uh, this is a hymn now, hymn 229. This is uh, not only a new song, but a new tune. But uh, I, I, I think I can confidently say it is an easy and to many a familiar tune. So we won't play it once through. We'll just sing it as usual. Please stand together. Hymn number 229.